Amen. Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in a couple of different places. If you want to grab out a copy of God's Word, if you don't have one, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you begin to get lost or whatever, just write down what you think I said, and uh, that table of contents at the front is going to let you know where the different books are. Large numbers are chapters, small numbers are verses. This morning we are in Genesis 4. Acts 4 and Luke 21. Genesis 4, Acts 4, and Luke 21. Taking a little bit of a trip through the Bible this morning. And I was thinking back to kind of pre-COVID existence, right? When it was just this thing that was happening in the news uh, over in China. And we're thinking, oh man, uh, no idea really. A framework for this. And I found myself in Uganda, Africa as... Uh, talking heads on the TV were kind of sounding this out, and, and borders in countries we've never heard of began to think about closing and all these various things. And so I'm over there in Uganda, and I'm at a pastor's conference. And so uh, pastors have shown up uh, from Chad, they've shown up from South Sudan, Sudan, just all over this Northeast Africa region. And, and they've come there to hear pastors from Texas talk about discipleship, and talk about how to preach, and, and talk about how to uh, handle things within the confines of the church. And so I'm, I'm tasked with talking about prayer and discipleship. And, and because I have some experience and some education on preaching, I'm talking about that. And in the middle of this, we begin to think through uh, just some of the costs associated with the conference. And so for one of us to fly over there, to be put up in this conference and to take the yellow fever vaccine, which was really hard to find at the time, which had something to do with France being a bad actor. And so just let that be what it is. And so all these various things, I have an animus against all things French. And so if you've just been here for the first time, you're wondering, is he a Francophile? And no, the answer to that is certainly not. And I don't like France. I mean, just let it go. Goodness. Some people are a little testy. And so we're, we're, we're over there, and we're looking at it like, what does it cost? What's, what's around about an average for what it takes to get one of us over there? And at that time, it was about four to $5,000. You got airfare, you got visa expenditures, you got vaccines, you got what some people call food while we're there, and, and all these various things. So it's about four to $5,000. And, and the African pastors begin to have this conversation among them that, man, this should be something that we put on ourselves. This shouldn't have to be funded by Westerners who are coming here to do this thing. And so they begin to have this conversation, and, and the three or four hundred of them that are there, like, we should put the bill for this. We should pay for this. If we value this, if we think this is great, we should be the ones putting them up. We should be the ones paying the bill. Now, they don't have, a lot of them, nine to five jobs. They don't have 401ks. They don't have a, a Roth account they've set up. They're not working in an endowment. They're not managing uh, trust funds that have been given to them. These guys largely are, are farmers. They, they are workers in low industry. But as the conference is wrapping up and they're walking up on the stage and they're talking about how much they've enjoyed it and, and, and how much they are wanting to uh, be an encouragement to us in all these various things, and they're sharing with us their hearts that they really want to take ownership on this. So this, this first guy walks up, and he says, we want to have you back, and we want to pay for it. So I'm going to give two cows. 
Now I want you to understand what a phenomenal sacrifice this is. This is a man who feeds his family, who sustains his livelihood on the livestock entrusted to him. So he's willing to make this phenomenal sacrifice. He's going to give two of his cows, and he can't even sacrifice one. Because it means enough to him that he's able to come and to study the word of God and to grow in his knowledge of God so that he can reach and be impactful to the people that are entrusted to him by God. This other guy walks up and he says, he's going to give two cows. I'm going to give four goats. Now this is starting to get ridiculous. So this other guy comes from an area that is rich in gold. Now he is clearly not rich in gold, but he comes from an area that's rich in gold. So we've got the guy that's giving the two cows, we've got the guy that's giving the four goats, and this guy walks up, and he tells us how many grams of gold that he's going to gather throughout this next year, and he is going to give because he values the teaching of the Word of God. Because he wants to be impactful. We have people that are going to make rugs. We have people that are going to sell clothing. We have people that are going to take up collections of cans in their area. We have people that are going to do anything and everything possible so that they might be a part of what it looks like to sacrifice that they might grow in their understanding of who God is so that ultimately they might more effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing was going to hold them back. Now, there's this, this part of us that as Westerners, perhaps, that we sit back and we look and we say, well, I make this much money, and so four goats isn't a big deal. Or, or I, I make this much money, and my family has this much money, and so I look at these things and think, that's not a big deal. I can just write a check, and I can take away from them this sacrifice. See, but if we take away their sacrifice, we take away their worship. Because there is no worship where there is no sacrifice. There is no worship where there is no sacrifice. It might seem to you that over these, over last week and this week, that primarily what we're talking about is money. But at the heart of all giving is a wor worshipful response to the Lord. So what I want us to consider this morning is what does it look like for us to give ourselves to worship the Lord in our generosity. We're going to look at it through the lens of these three stories. Flip to Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Within the story of Cain and Abel, if you've grown up in the church, you recognize this, that this is the occasion of the first murder, that this is the occasion of the first family conflict. But buried within there, we also recognize that this is the occasion in some sense of the first measuring of offering before the Lord. So Moses is writing this, and he gets in through this, and he says essentially that Adam knew his wife, and so they have Cain, their firstborn, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, the secondborn. And we find that Abel is a keeper of the sheep, and that Cain, like his father, is a worker of the soil. And in the course of time, verse 3 says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So this is what this looks like. 
It's, it's, it's whatever time it is. It's the beginning of the year. It's the harvest time of the year. And they are ready to bring an offering to the Lord. So Cain kind of has this picture that he looks around and he says, Oh, it's tax time again. What do I got? What do I got? What do I got? Uh, okay, I know what I got. I got some radishes. No one likes radishes. Even Seth won't eat those. And so he gathers those up. He's like, what else? I got some rutabaga. And so he gathers those up. He's like, I got some carrots that are sketchy, but you know, whatever. And so he gathers the carrots up. He says, I'm going to even go uptown on this. I've got some jicama. Nobody knows what it is. It's in a lot of fancy salads. And so he gathers all these things up. He gets this board out and he slices it all up. And he says, look, a charcuterie board for Jesus. So he goes before the Lord and he sets his discard charcuterie board down and he's like, be satisfied. I chopped that up special. Like I even made little curly things out of the jicama. Nobody's got that. Abel. Abel's the keeper of the flock and Abel's over there. And we can almost see in our mind that he's looking at his flock and he's puzzling over which sheep would bring the most delight to the Lord. This one has defense. I just don't know if this is the right one. Ah, I have found the perfect offering for the Lord. And then he searches through again and again and again. Because he will not be satisfied if he is not sacrificed. So whereas Cain showed up with the charcuterie board for the Lord and he set it down, in some sense what we see in our minds is uh, this, 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 this character of Abel. And so he's got his livestock trailer full and, and so he's pulling it like this because he doesn't have a gooseneck hookup and so he's just kind of walking you know along like this and he rolls up and he, he lays it all down and he's got the fat portion and then he lays it all down it's this heaping pile and you can almost just see that Cain becomes incensed y'all could you move your livestock God can't see my charcuterie board show off what's wrong with you look at what the Lord does so incredibly insightful. You see, our optics, we would walk up and we would say, that charcuterie board is embarrassing. What are you doing? And we would be impressed. We would be overwhelmed at the sheer volume of what Abel brought. But how does the Lord rate them? Look at what he says. They brought forth the, the, the firstborn of the flock, their fat portions. And listen to what he writes. He says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. This represents the key of our understanding of how the Lord values our offerings to him. That in some sense, when the offering plate is passed or, or when, when the website pulls from your money every account, what the Lord does first before he ever considers the monetary value of your gift He sizes up your heart. So when we place our checks, when we place our cash, when we pass the offering, in some sense, we are placing ourselves and our worship in the plate before we ever have it drafted from our account. So the Lord looked at Abel, and he recognized in Abel a man who wanted to sacrifice that God might be glorified, a man who wanted to feel the pain and the anguish of his gift. 
So he had regard for Abel, and he had regard for his offering. Verse 5, we read these tragic words, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, gives us some insight into what exactly is going on here. In Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We see the faithfulness of Abel. Even following his death at the hand of his brother, what we see in Cain is disdain. You see, Cain didn't want to worship the Lord, so he didn't even consider what generosity might look like. It was rote, it was empty, it was mindless, it was perfunctory, it was whatever word you use to describe something that has no substance or value. There was no sacrifice. And with Cain, we see this question come to us. Do we worship the Lord in our generosity as Cain does? Is it empty and meaningless? Are we gathering up these things that we have in excess and merely rendering to the Lord because we feel compelled to obey? Some of us, we have terrific sums of money, and so giving money is no cost to us. Some of us, we have terrific amounts of time, so giving time is no cost for us. Some of us, we are so busy being around people that giving of ourselves is no cost for us. The Lord does not receive glory and honor if what you give to him costs you nothing. He is not worshipped, for there is not sacrifice. How do you worship the Lord in your giving? Acts 4, we see this picture of the church just... I mean, it's going gangbusters. People are suffering and they're praising Jesus for the, for the right, for the privilege of suffering for the name. We pick up in verse 32 of Acts 4 and it says, The full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So they live, in some sense, as a true community. No one had any needs. Because the moment a need was discovered, somebody was just falling over everybody else and saying, brother, let me meet your need. Sister, let me meet your need. Let me help you. Don't let them help you. I was here to help you first. Like, that's the kind of arguments they're having. And so it's just that they're bringing everything they have and they're laying it at the apostles' feet and the apostles are, are just kind of divvying things out. And they're like, this person needs this and this person needs this and this person needs this. They need somewhere to stay. You've got an extra bedroom. On and on again, they're caring for one another. Look at what he says in uh, verse 37. He gives this example. He says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see a couple of things about this brother. He owned the field. And because he owned the field, he had status and he had wealth. But when he considered what it might look like for him to worship the Lord, he looked around and he says, I've got this field that can be useful for the expansion of the kingdom. So he liquidated his assets. And when he sold the field and he had all that money there, he purposed in his heart who that money would go to. 
And to him, as he prayerfully considered that before the Lord, he knew in his heart, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that none of that money was he to hold back. So he brought the full sum of the money. It's his family's property. It's, it's been handed down to him. It is his social status. It is his guarantee of livelihood. And he surrenders it all and lays it at the apostles' feet. He knew what it was to sacrifice, and he would not be left out. He had to worship the Lord. Now, this story catches on. And people have this understanding. Have, hey, uh, you, know, you, you, you know that guy from Cyprus? Oh, you mean the Levite? You mean the son of, uh, son of discouragement? No, not discouragement, encouragement. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know him as Barney. They call him Joseph. You know what that joker did? He took that 100 acres he had down in Quinlan and he sold it and he gave the whole thing to the Rafa Clinic. He gave the whole thing. And he said, I heard that your guy's budget needs about a half a million dollars a year. And I just sold this crazy piece of property to this couple from California, sight unseen. <laughs> I told them it was near a body of water. I kept saying there are five tanks on it, and they got really nervous, and I said, no, that's Texas for pond. And I'm going to fund your ministry for the next year. I, 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 I want to do that. So the people of the church found out about it, and they started going to Barnabas. They started going to him and saying, I can't believe you did that. Man, that's awesome. Like, people are being fed that we couldn't feed before. People are being housed that couldn't be housed before. People are being cared for that could have never been cared for before. And he just says, all I want to do is worship my king. I don't want people to know my name. I don't want people to know where I come from. All I want to do is worship my king, and all I want to do is glorify him. Makes its way to this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And you can almost see it. Sapphira runs in, and she says, Ananias, you're never going to believe this. This son of encouragement, goodness, whatever. He sold this 100 acres down in Quinlan, and he gave all the money to the Rafa Clinic. Ananias says, Ananias says, Quinlan, huh? I got 300 acres in Caddo. I got 300 acres in Caddo. You know how much more valuable that property is than some podunk 100 acres in Quinlan? I'm going to list that right now. Who's the hardest working realtor you know? It's me. It's Ananias. I'm going to self-list. I'm going to put it for sale by owner because I'm not giving any commission to anybody. And she talked him out of that because he couldn't have access to the MLS. And so he, he went the other way. And so they listed the piece of property. And he's in there and he's closing and he gets that check. And y'all, it is fat. It is fat. It's in the millions. And Ananias turns to Sapphira and he says, listen, this is a life-altering sum of money. This is a life-altering sum of money. I don't think they're ready for it. But you know what let's do? Let's hold some of that back. No one's going to know. No one's going to care. They're going to be so blown away with how impressively generous this is. So the property sells for $4 million. He holds a quarter of it back. He walks in before the apostles. Uh, it just is toga. He says, are y'all ready for this? I sold my land. Californians are coming to Caddo too. I've got all of this money. 
Here's $3 million. Peter looks at Ananias. And the text even tells us Luke has this recognition. Look at what he says. With his wife's knowledge, verse 2, he kept some of the proceeds back. This connotes the idea of he sought to swindle them. It's not that the brother's bad with math. He wanted all of the appearance of generosity with none of the true sacrifice. He wanted people to look at him and to say, look at how amazing it is. He wanted them to look at them as a couple, enjoying the fruits of what they sold, and say, they are the most generous couple. I don't even remember the son of whatever encouragement. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? He's not saying that you owe to give everything to the apostles. He's saying the only reason you're holding this back is because you want to be satisfied on both accounts. You want to be seen as generous, but you don't want to truly sacrifice. You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to lie to God. You didn't have to submit in this way. He says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died on the spot. It wasn't the accusation of Peter which sent him into cardiac arrest. The Holy Spirit of God struck that man dead for being a liar. So as the young men rose up, they wrapped him and they carried him out and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, and Sapphira's there, and she is giddy because she's getting ready to buy an Escalade, a G-Wagon. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He's putting her to the test. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to, agreed to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell dead at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. Now listen to what happens in the church. A great fear fell upon the church and upon all those who heard these things. They did not want to worship the Lord with their generosity. They wanted to be worshipped as generous. This is how we're trained. If you want to raise money for a nonprofit, you go to a nonprofit banquet, typically what they'll have is a banner that says brought to you by, and it'll have the names of the people or the organizations that, that, that underwrote the biggest amount. These are $10,000. Below it, in Comic Sans likely, at the $5,000 amount, we read smaller names, slightly more obscure. And down and down and down and down until you finally get a piece of paper you're going to throw away when you leave there with just a myriad of names on the back and all these people gave at 100 or 50 or 5 or whatever level. Now, this is how we have to raise money for nonprofits. But this is not the generosity of the people of God and their ethic for giving. You see, the generosity of the people of God and his kingdom, they want to give, they want to be generous because they long to be worshipers, not because they long to be worshipped as generous. But I challenge you to go to a, uh, go to a banquet. Sit through, I remember when we were sitting with uh, fundraising consultants, capital campaign consultants, and they talked about what it looked like to raise the most money. 
And so you, you bring couples in and you set up a table for two uh, in the sanctuary and you put the spotlights on them and the rest of the room is dark and you play a tear-jerking video in the back that talks about what their money can do and how they can change the world if they give. We're playing in something in their hearts when we do that. We're, we're calling them in some sense to say, Ananias and Sapphira weren't all bad. They did give money posthumously to the church. And that's how we'd say that. They died to serve. Hmm. They died because they were serving themselves. Their money still went to great use. The apostles went on a wonderful beach retreat that year. <laughs> Jesus gives warning to this in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. And he talks about money. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Essentially, they cry out and they say, I'm so generous, I'm so kind. Look at all the poor people who've been made average. Truly, I say, that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do we want to be generous? Or do we want to be seen and worshipped as generous? Luke 21. Luke 21 presents us with this I'm going to say it's just kind of a gut check. Luke 21, 1 to 4. Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, it says he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering boxes and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now we have no way of understanding two small copper coins, so let's just say this. She put in roughly two dollars. She put in two bucks. Those two small copper coins are about a 64th of a day's wage. So $15 an hour, she put in, we're going to round it up and be generous, she put in $2. Look, look at Jesus' commentary. He says, truly I tell you that this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Why? Is Jesus truly just that bad at math? math does jesus not know that it costs money to keep the lights on does jesus not know that it costs money to keep people on the mission field does jesus not know what the rates of insurance is doing today see jesus doesn't value the economy of the kingdom as we do he doesn't base it on the dollar amount look at verse four he says for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put all she had to live on she put those two dollars in and she goes home not being able to buy soup for dinner she goes home not being able to pay her rent she walks out she gets in her car and she can't fill up the tank she has nothing left you know even as you're hearing me say this there's something that's happening to you bodily that says whoo he better not ask me to give all I've got because my creditors would be unhappy because I'm leveraged to here in debt. It's the question in our inability to be asked it, our refusal to be asked 
that tends to indicate where our hearts are. What are you willing to give to be a worshiper? What are you giving to be a worshiper? When COVID hit and so many of our families were facing financial turmoil, job insecurity, one of the families in our body took a 50% reduction in pay. Now you look at it and you say, I could, I could do a 10% pay cut. I could do a 20% pay cut. I'm real, real big on Netflix and so this is getting painful now. Do a 30% pay cut. But how many, how many of us could stomach, how many of us could make it with a 50% pay cut? You begin to look at things you can cut, right? You're cutting Christmas presents. You're cutting trips, vacations. You cut juice, but those people will cut you off. We look at our contributions to nonprofits, and we would cut those. We're tithing, our, our income goes down, we're going to cut that. When this 50% pay cut hit this family, do you know what they did cut? They didn't cut their nonprofit giving. In fact, a conversation in this family is, do you think we should cut our giving to the church? And the response was, well, the response was not, no, think about how great people will talk about us. The response was, God is faithful. And he has not told us to reduce our faithfulness, but he has given us an opportunity to increase our sacrifice. What would it look like for you to be a worshiper? Last year and a half or so, I had a conversation with one of the widows in our church. Almost negative income into their family. I mean, so little. She comes in and she's having this conversation with me and she says, Pastor, I just want to apologize to you for not giving and not giving regularly. And man, I don't know what people give. I don't know with what regularity people give. And I said, hey, listen, don't apologize to me. You are in an incredibly difficult situation. No one expects you to be giving. The fact that your heart delights in giving and wants to says more than any amount of money anyone at this church can give. She said, no, 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 you, mis you mishear me. I'm here to make up for the giving that I haven't given over the last year. I'm not looking for an excuse. I want to be a worshiper. Where there is no sacrifice, there is no worship. What would it look like if we we're to give ourselves to worship the Lord. See, in terms of retiring our debt, we can be incredibly successful. We can retire our debt over the next three years, and, and, and people can look at it and say, that is amazing. They raised so much money. We can do that, and, we'd be, and we can be successful, and we can be no closer to the heart of God. No closer to reflecting the excellence of our Savior. Because our success ultimately won't be measured in dollars, but it will be measured and realized in hearts submitted to the Lord. 
And it's in a heart submitted to the Lord. It's in a desire to sacrifice unto him. It's, it, it's, it's in this insistence that we be counted as worshipers that ultimately we become genuine. So this is my challenge for us individually. If you're married, you go home, you have a conversation with your spouse, I would encourage you to bring your kids into this. Generosity is something we should teach our children. It's not something society's lined up to teach them. They learn selfishness without any instruction. But let's, let each of us consider what it looks like to worship the Lord with all of our lives, our time, our talents, and our treasure. What does your time look like? What are you and the experiences that the Lord has allowed you to steward, the, 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 the things that you're good at, the passions you have? How has he allowed you, positioned you here and now to serve him? What portion of these things are you rending back to? And money that so easily captivates our hearts and it's so fantastically simple to metric and know. I give 10% net, no more, no less. I give 10% gross, no more, no less. What would it look like for you to sacrificially give that you might be counted as a worshiper? That as a church, let us collectively begin to think what it might look like to give ourselves to the rapid repayment of our debt. You heard this panel up here and the countless other ministries of our church. And what would it look like if we were to set aside funds for housing those who find themselves homeless? What would it look like to partner with other churches to set it up so that no one in Greenville goes hungry? What would it look like if, if, if we were able to, to set aside and give ourselves first to the Lord and through the giving of finances to where we were able to go to someone and say, listen, if you want to go serve the Lord, we will foot the bill. And we were so busy sending people and so busy funding people to go that, that we were going to other churches and say, who do you have that you want to get rid of? Who do you have, rather, that you want to send to the farthest places of the earth? This is the heartbeat. This is the picture. This is the posture of a generous church. And what stands between us, in some sense, between today and that display of generosity is retiring our debt over the next three years. What would it look like for you to give yourself to the Lord in worship and to sacrificially give? Now you may be here. This is your first time in church. Maybe you've heard the gospel before. But as you sit here and, and, and entering into these metrics, you're beginning to think that if I give, I will receive. You see, the economy of the kingdom of God says it this way, that if you want to steward your life well, then you steward your life by surrendering to the debt that you were never going to be able to pay. That was instead paid on your behalf. Simply put, you are alienated from God and far from him because of the sin in your life. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You cannot be righteous, neither can I. But 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And this God calls you to himself. 
The debt you could not pay has been paid for you. The life you could not live has been lived for you. And he longs to lavish his riches and his grace and his mercy upon you. Would you pray with me? God, we desire to honor you in our gifts. We desire to honor you in our lives. God, I pray that today that those who are experiencing shame, those who are experiencing a sense of judgment, that they feel far from you, would receive the invitation to come and to know Jesus, to come and to be held, to be redeemed, to be forgiven. God, I pray that they would speak to me or one of our pastors here, someone at the welcome booth about what it looks like to follow Jesus. God, I pray for us as a group of people and us as a church that we would take seriously what it looks like to sacrifice that we might become worshipers. What it might look like for us to give ourselves to the pursuit of generosity that we might give to you all honor and all glory forever and ever. Amen.